Well, good morning, Marcel family. My name is Ashley Island, and I'm one of our co-pastors here along with Troy, and it's my joy to join you for a few moments this morning. Um, I wanted to, this morning, invite you to pray for my family over the next few weeks. I'll be taking an extended time away from my pastoral and my leadership responsibilities here, as the past 10 months have been uniquely grueling. Specifically, I've been navigating physical health challenges that began in August of last year and which have most recently culminated in overlapping autoimmune diagnoses of both Sjogren's syndrome and lupus. Though my body seems to be changing every week, I am so grateful for my fantastic doctors and I have a lot of confidence and hope in the treatment plan. In addition, on May 23rd, my father, Sidney Holmes, died at my parents' home in Texas. I was blessed to be present with him in the final days of his life while he was on home hospice care. Though he was freed from his over 30-year battle with his own autoimmune disease and chronic kidney failure, and though I know his relationship with Jesus was intimately loving and strong, I miss him more deeply than I can that I can adequately explain. I will be taking time until August 1st to intentionally grieve and process these two massive life changes, even as I hold on to the hope I believe is only found in Jesus Christ. On behalf of Delwyn, our kids, and myself, I want to thank our staff our elders, and you, our Mars Hill community, for allowing us this time and space. As I shared with Troy a couple of weeks ago, my prayer is that in this time, I would believe only what is true about God, only what is true about me, and only what is true about this season and this particular valley. And so I covet your prayers in the next few weeks, and I commit to you that you will be in my prayers as well. Thank you. So we won't wait to pray. Um, let's uh, just hold silence and bear witness. And if in your own words you want to pray, and then I will represent us and pray uh, in just a few minutes.
God, we thank you for the church, this mysterious body that is bound together by forces and love and desires that outpace anything we could ever think or imagine. And so we together as your church uh, join our hearts and our voices to pray for our sister. And of the many things that we could be praying today, God, we, we want to channel those prayers uh, in a couple of simple ways. God, we pray for healing and restoration of Ashley's body. Would you put back together what is broken? And would you bring peace and comfort where there is pain? We pray, God, as well, that your voice would be unmistakably clear and loud for Ashley. That by your spirit, you would speak the truth that she needs to hear. That you would give the wisdom and the vision she needs. That you would give the hope that will buoy her and her family's life in this season. God, would your presence that leads her through the valley of darkness also lead her to still waters. And with her desire to only hear what is true, true about you, true about herself, true about this season, God, would those truths in real mercy and grace be illuminated for her. For Delwyn and Brooklyn and Miles and Journey and for Vicki. We pray an unmistakable sense of your presence that they would know you in their grief, that they would know you in this season of uncertainty. We're grateful for the leadership and the ministry of our sister, and we are eager for her to join us again. Remind her of our prayers for her, of our support for her, um, as she grieves, as she waits, as she rests. Thank you, God, for your great love for us. And thank you for hearing and answering our prayers. And we pray them in Jesus' name. And amen. And amen. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, um, thank you for your support and for your affirmation of this decision. Grateful. Um, why don't you take your seats? There is no, in worship leader school, they don't teach you a transition from something like that into whatever else you're going to do. Um, so I'm going to pray again. How about that? Because you can come, Lori. That's great. Um, because we're going, to, uh, we're going to turn our attention um, to the teaching text for today and to a few moments here where we will... Um, a look at the scriptures. So why don't we pray together, asking that the Spirit would be the light into our darkness. God, as we now turn our attention to the written word, may this word become flesh in and through us. And would you, by your Spirit, be the light unto our path? And would you open up eyes that need to see and open up ears that need to hear? And would you soften hearts that need to receive whatever it is that you have for us. 
And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Lori. Good morning. Good morning. Y'all, it's hard to miss a dad today. So thanks for being a good family. Um, Our reading today is from 2 Kings, chapter 6, verse 8 through 15. If you are using a Shed Bible, it is on page 342. So I'll wait for you to find your spot. Now the king of Aram was at war with Israel. After conferring with his officers, he said, I will set up my camp in such and such a place. The man of God sent word to the king of Israel, beware of passing that place because the Arameans are going down there. So the king of Israel checked on the place indicated by the man of God. Time and again, Elisha warned the king so that he was on guard in such places. This enraged the king of Aram. He summoned his officers and demanded of them, tell me, which of us is on the side of the king of Israel? None of us, my lord the king, said one of his officers. But Elisha the prophet, who is in Israel, tells the king of Israel the very words you speak in your bedroom. Go, find out where he is, the king ordered, so I can send men and capture him. The report came back. He is in Dothan. Then he sent horses and chariots and a strong force there. They went by night and surrounded the city. When the servant of the man of God got up and went out early the next morning, an army with horses and chariots had surrounded the city. Oh no, my lord, what shall we do? The servant asked. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning, Mars Hill. I want to begin by uh, reiterating what what Troy shared there, that Ashley and Delwyn, Vicki, we love you. And we are here for you and praying for you over the next handful of weeks as you continue to grieve and navigate all of this. And for all of you who are coming in this morning, navigating the complexity of the loss of father or father figure, uh, we, we hold you deeply in prayer. And this morning we are continuing our series in the Old Testament, Mars Hill Mixtape, an Old Testament throwback. And one of the things that I love about summer is the change in rhythm, the change in routine. Perhaps it's the end of the school year. Perhaps it's sort of the long days that seem to go on again and again. Whatever it is, this particular season draws my heart towards poetry. It's the book that I reach for more often than not when I go over to my shelf on a Saturday morning or late in the evening. I love to read poetry throughout the summer. And I think in part it's because of 
the way that poets capture the vibrancy of the world. Particularly summer here in Michigan. There's nothing better than summer in Michigan, right? (laughs) Amen. And the poets that I like to read tend to write about the created world. And so I go to these poets and I wonder, how do they see the world this way? How are they able to use word pictures to paint metaphors and similes and to draw us deeply into this world and to see it differently, to see it through their eyes? The poet has a particular way of seeing the world. What do you see? This morning, sight is going to play an important role in the story that we're reading. Sight and seeing enhances the comedic nature of this story. It helps to kind of push and move the story along as we're transported through it with all of its twists and turns. Here in 2 Kings, we find ourselves in what are called the prophetic narratives or the former prophets, stories that are written about prophets like Deborah, Samuel, Elijah, and Elisha. And unlike some of the later prophets, like Isaiah or Jeremiah or Ezekiel, these particular prophets are driven by narrative. Their stories are told, woven into the life of the people of Israel and all of the complexity and messiness of life. And so we come to this story this morning, encountering them as their stories are told through this particular narrative. And much like the stories that we read today, these narratives are driven by conflict and tension and character. And so it serves us well as we read this story to pay attention to those things. Where is the conflict in the story? Where is their tension? How is it being resolved? Where are the characters moving and at play? And as we heard just a moment ago, the story opens up with conflict. Two kings, two nations, two armies at war with one another. We have the king of Aram and the king of Israel at war with one another. Where we find ourselves in the story of the people of Israel is a divided kingdom. Long has since passed the time of a united monarchy. Gone are the days of King Saul, King David, and King Solomon. And now the kingdom has split into two different kingdoms, two nations. The kingdom of Judah in the south with its capital in Jerusalem and the kingdom of Israel in the north with its capital in Samaria. And just to the northeast is Aram. 
And Aram and Israel throughout the book of 2 Kings have frequent border skirmishes with one another. They're at war all the time, it seems like. And here, at the beginning of this story, we find out that they are at war once again. And yet there is a particular ambiguity given to this story. For we don't know which kings are at war. We just hear the king of Aram and the king of Israel. And so while this story is about a particular people at a particular time, in a particular place, there is a kind of universality to this story. This story can be read much more broadly because the kings are not named. We could just as easily say there were two neighbors who had a conflict. There were two co-workers. There were two leaders. There were two schools. There were two parties. There were two nations, two whatever. And I don't think it takes too much imagination for us to think about places of conflict in our own lives and in our own world where this story might have resonance. But I think the lack of certainty about which kings are involved here also gives another meaning to the story. These two kings are not the main characters. For just a verse later, as the story goes on, we find out that there is a man of God, a prophet in Israel named Elisha. And every time the king of Aram tries to capture the king of Israel or his troops or army or catch them off guard, this man of God, Elisha the prophet, warns the king of Israel, beware, be on guard, watch out, for the king of Aram is going to try to get you. And this infuriates the king of Aram. We can see the tension and the conflict of the story beginning to build. The king of Aram's trying to do something. His plan is thwarted. And he wonders, who among my trusted advisors is betraying me? Who is telling our secrets? Who is on the side of the king of Israel? And one of his advisors informs him, none, my lord. But rather, there is a prophet in Israel, Elisha, who tells the king of Israel, the very words you speak in your bedroom. The words you speak in your most closed off, secret place. Even those words, the prophet hears. And here we begin to see the comedy of this story. For upon hearing those words, that there is a prophet who hears the words that the king speaks. The king turns to his servant and says, go and find out where that one is located. As if Elisha the prophet won't hear and know that he, someone is being sent to figure out where he's located. 
It's so the story moves along. What is going to happen? The conflict and the tension continue to build as we find out that the prophet Elisha is located in Dothan. And so the king of Aram sends horses and chariots and an army to go by night to try to capture, to catch off guard the prophet Elisha. What's going to happen to him? And the story continues to build as we find out that the army surrounds the city and the prophet's servant wakes up early in the morning and sees that the city is surrounded. Now, Dothan is an important city, one in which the geography of the land helped tell the story, help enhance and shape how we might understand this particular story. Dothan is a heavily fortified city It's located about 12 miles to the northeast of the capital city of Samaria. In some ways, it sits between Samaria and Aram. It's a city that watches. It's a city that is attentive, a city that is on guard for any invading army that might try to come in and capture the capital city. But it's also a city that sits on the edge of the Jezreel Valley, a valley important for the agricultural work of Israel, important for the economic life. It sits along a trading route as well. And so here we begin to see perhaps the importance that, Jezre- that Dothan plays in this story, for this is a city that is on watch. And here, in the middle of the night, an army has come and surrounded it. But Dothan is also mentioned one other time in the Old Testament. Back in Genesis chapter 37, Dothan is the city that, upon being sent out by his father Israel, Joseph goes to find his brothers and where they are tending their flocks. And after coming to Shechem and looking for his brothers, someone tells him, no, they have gone up to Dothan. And so Joseph goes up to Dothan The text reads that they have moved on from here, the man answered. I heard them say, let's go to Dothan. So Joseph went after his brothers and found them near Dothan. And it's here that his brothers look out and see him in the distance. And they conspire and they say, let's kill him. Or better yet, let's throw him in a well and let's sell him. It's a city where Joseph was caught off guard, where an ambush took place. And so with that in the background, we come to this story hearing, is there another ambush that's about to take place? Joseph was caught off guard. Is Elisha going to be caught off guard? 
And Elisha responds to the servant. Here, continuing on in verse 16. Do not be afraid, the prophet answered. Those who are with us are more than those who are with them. Perhaps as Elisha gets up in the morning and sees this group of chariots and horses around the city, in the hills surrounding the city, Elisha summons the words of Psalm 121. I lift my eyes to the hills. Where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. Or perhaps he summons the words of Psalm 20. Some trust in chariots and others in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. And he responds to his servant with these words of comfort and we courage that we hear throughout the scriptures. Do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. But what is going to happen? We can see the tension and the conflict continue to build. And Elisha prays, open the eyes, Lord, so that he may see. Then the Lord opened the servant's eyes, and he looked, and he saw the hills full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. So the servant's eyes are open. Now he's able to see what he was unable to see before. And we wonder, what is going to happen? Is Elisha going to command this army of God to come down upon the army of the king of Aram? What is going to happen here? The story continues. As the enemy came down towards him, Elisha prayed to the Lord, Strike this army with blindness. So he struck them with blindness as Elisha had asked. Elisha told them, This is not the road, and this is not the city. Follow me, and I will lead you to the man you are looking for. And he led them to Samaria. Again, the comedy of the story begins to play out. The ones who had set an ambush have been ambushed. The ones who tried to capture Elisha have been captured. And now Elisha, the one who they came to capture, is like, this isn't the city. You, you have found the wrong place and the wrong person. But I know where the person is and the city is. Come, follow me. And he takes them on a 12-mile journey, almost a half marathon away to the capital city of Samaria. But the tension, right, we can feel it here, the conflict. What's going to happen when they get to Samaria, when they get into the city? And so the story continues on. After they entered the city, Elisha said, Lord, open the eyes of these men so that they can see. Then the Lord opened their eyes and they looked, and there they were inside Samaria. Uh oh. If you were one of these soldiers, what is your response? This, this is not going well. This. We, the king of Aram is not going to be happy when we report back that we got tricked. 
what is going to happen. When the king of Israel saw them, he asked Elisha, shall I kill them, my father? Shall I kill them? What's the response when the invading army has been caught off guard and is now in your city? Elisha responds, do not kill them, he answered. Would you kill those you have captured with your own sword or bow? Set food and water before them so that they may eat and drink and then go back to their master. So he prepared a great feast for them. And after they had finished eating and drinking, he sent them away. And they returned to their master. So the bands from Aram stopped raiding Israel's territory. How many of us saw that ending coming? That's not how the story is supposed to go. Particularly in the Old Testament, right? There's supposed to be blood and gruesome murder everywhere. But no. Here, the prophet invites the king of Israel to see differently. See your enemy differently. See as the prophet sees. As one who holds the large narrative of God's redemptive story and Israel's call to participate in it. Hold that that what God had done for Israel, God is inviting Israel to bear in their own life and do for others. That Israel, you are to be a blessing to the nations. You are to be my witnesses demonstrating to, yes, even Aram, what it looks like to live in the kingdom of God. What God has done uniquely for you, God has done for the nations as well. And we see this story playing out throughout the Old Testament, whether here with the Arameans or with Ruth and Boaz or with Naaman or Rahab, or the Shunammite woman. Throughout the Old Testament, we see God working among the nations. God's steadfast love working, inviting people to see the world differently. What do you see? This story is full of comedy full of comedic irony, but also comedy in the sense that this story leads towards a happy ending, an ending that no one expects. In fact, the Old Testament scholar Ellen Davis, one of the queens of Old Testament studies, she, she notes this. She says, in a traditional kinship-based society, such as Israel's. Receiving hospitality is a definitive moment in the process whereby outsiders become insiders. Receiving hospitality is the definitive moment whereby outsiders become 
insiders. And here in this story, we see this at play. We see this good news. Outsiders have become insiders. A happy ending has taken place. And while we may not understand what it looks like to live in a kinship-based society day to day, we as the church, I think, recognize the radical and categorical shift that happens when an outsider becomes an insider. When one who was far off is brought near. When one who was previously excluded is now included. For we have been recipients of that glad and joyous tiding. We once were far off and have been brought near. For as the Apostle Paul writes in his letter to the church in Ephesus, But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility. Friends, we were far off. We were outsiders. We were excluded. And by the grace of God, we have been brought in. It is not by our own doing. Not by our own action. Not by our own righteousness or goodness or just living or whatever it might be. It surely isn't by any sort of authority or group of people or whatever it might be. It is solely by the love and grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that we who were outside have been brought inside. Amen? We are recipients of this good news. See that you are loved by God and welcomed into God's family. The scene plays another important role in this story. For throughout Hebrew narratives, when a narrator wants to make a particular point, when they want the one who's hearing or seeing this story to focus in on something, they repeat a word or a phrase or a theme. And scene is one of those things that is being repeated throughout this narrative, both indirectly and directly. Scene is being used indirectly, in ways such as the prophet Elijah telling the king of Israel, beware, be on guard, watch out, for the king of Aram is going to do this. It's being used indirectly in ways like the city of Dothan, geographically pointing to a particular attentiveness, a particular scene. It's being used in places like the king of Aram's army coming under the cover of darkness so they wouldn't be seen and then being blinded. 
It's being used in all sorts of ways, but it's being used directly as well. It's used six times directly with the Hebrew word to see, ra'ah, in these ways as we saw throughout the text. First, the king of Aram says, go and see where the prophet is. Then Elisha prays that his servant's eyes would be opened and that he would see. And the Lord opens his eyes and he saw. And then the prophet Elisha prays that the army of the king of Ram, that their eyes would be opened when they come into the city of Samaria. And they saw. And the king of Israel sees that the army is within the city. Six times this word is being used. But interestingly, in Hebrew narratives, Hebrew stories, six is an incomplete number. Seven is complete. Six is incomplete. We see this in the pattern of Genesis chapter 1. Genesis chapter 1 begins with seven words in Hebrew. And then it goes on to tell the seven days of creation. Seven is being woven throughout that particular story as a way of talking about completeness and wholeness. And I wonder if the narrator here intentionally only uses C six times as a way to invite the ones who hear this story to wonder, where is the seventh sea? Perhaps the seventh sea is us. We are invited to see ourselves in this story and ask the question, what do you see? And not only what do you see, but what do you see in the who that you see? The king of Israel is invited to see his enemy differently. Who are we invited to see differently? A couple of weeks ago, We had the third annual Lake Family last day of school extravaganza. We pick uh, our daughter up from school, half day, and we ask, what would you like to do? She wanted to go to Craig's Cruisers. So we spent the afternoon driving go-karts, playing mini-golf, spending way too much money on arcade games only to get a few tickets to buy a few pieces of candy. (laughs) Highway robbery. (laughs) And before we left, I decided to step into the batting cages. (laughs) So, I get the helmet, I get the bat, get the token, and I assess the variety of speeds that are offered with the baseball batting cages. And I pick a middle ground, 50 to 60 miles per hour. I played baseball as a kid. 
I drop the token in. The light comes on. The ball drops into the machine. I'm ready. First pitch comes out of the machine. Whiff. The thud against the backdrop, but the backdrop was also the thud my heart was making as it sank into my stomach. I spend the next two and a half minutes looking like Cosmo Kramer coming through Jerry Seinfeld's door with a baseball bat. Just swing and a miss. And what I should have remembered in that moment is that hitting a baseball is one of the most difficult things to do in sports. That a major league baseball player seeing a ball come at them 90 to 95 to 100 miles per hour, not 50 to 60 miles per hour like I was, has around 400 milliseconds from the time the ball leaves the pitcher's hand until it hits the catcher's mitt. 400 milliseconds, the blink of an eye. But taking into account the stride of the pitcher and the wind-up of the hitter, all things factored in, a major league hitter has around 125 milliseconds to make a decision whether to swing or not. Impossible! How do they do it? Well, one, Major League Baseball players tend to have a genetic advantage. Many of them have better than 20-20 vision, which I do not, clearly. (laughs) Second, they anticipate based on the count, based on the pitcher, all things, where the pitch may go, knowing that if they can just get a little bit of a head start, it may give them advantage. But the third thing, which I most certainly did not have when I stepped into this batting cage, was practice. Major league players have a lot of practice. From the time they were kids playing pepper in the front yard with their family and friends to batting cages when they were in middle school and high school and all these hours and hours and hours of practice to see the pitch differently. It takes practice to see as a baseball player sees and to see as the poet sees, and to see as the prophet sees, and to see our enemies differently. It takes practice. And one of the people in Scripture that recognized this was the Apostle Paul, one who himself was an insider, and yet found himself on the outside. One who had his own sort of second king's experience when on the road to go and persecute the church, 
He is blinded by the light of Jesus, taken to a city, and is given new sight. And I think Paul picks up on this idea of seeing differently, of hospitality, of caring for those that you may call enemy in his letter to the church in Rome. In chapter 12, he writes this, Love must be sincere. Hate what is evil. Cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in love. Honor one another above yourselves. Never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor serving the Lord. Be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. Share with the Lord's people who are in need. Practice hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Mourn with those who mourn. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud, but willing to associate with people of low position. Do not be conceited. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath, for it is written, it is mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Paul was one who experienced this sort of definitive moment that comes with hospitality and invites the Roman Christians to do the same, that they would be a people who would see that they are loved by God and welcomed into God's family and are invited to ask the question, what do you see in the who that you see? What do you see in the who that you see? It takes practice for us to have a different kind of vision. One that this story in 2 Kings invites us into and one that Paul continues on to see the way that God is moving throughout the world, inviting us as Christ's church, to participate and to bear witness to this story as well. That once we were far off and have come near, once this world was far off, but it has been brought near because of God's steadfast love. And what can separate us from the love of God? Nothing. And so each week, 
We are reminded of this story and invited to participate and to practice it when we come to this table. For this is a table that Jesus on the road to Emmaus with his disciples, they did not see him until he broke bread and shared it with them, until he offered an act of hospitality and their eyes were opened. This is the table that the psalmist speaks of in Psalm 23 when he says, you prepare a table for me in the presence of my enemy. We come to this table, not by our own action, but because of what God has done for us in Jesus Christ. And so, Mars Hill, I say to you, the Lord be with you. Lift up your hearts. Let us give thanks to the Lord our God. And so, we pray Holy and right it is and our joyful duty to give thanks and praise to you, O Lord, our God, almighty and everlasting creator. For you created the heavens with all of their hosts and the earth in all of its plenty. And you have shown us your love in giving us life and breath in your good creation. And yet you demonstrated the fullness of your love, giving us eyes to see and ears to hear and minds to comprehend and hearts to love in sending your son Jesus Christ to be the one who brings those who are far off near. Those who were excluded, included. Those who were outsiders, insiders. And so we bless and adore your glorious name, praising you with your heavenly host, holy, 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 God of power and might. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And so send your Holy Spirit, we pray, that the bread that we break and the cup that we drink would be to us the communion of the body and blood of Christ. That we would be joined to him in just as many grains from many fields have been gathered into this one loaf and grapes from many vineyards into this one cup. May you too gather your church from the ends of the earth into your kingdom. Until that time, come, Lord Jesus. And so we rehearse the story that we heard. That on the night that Jesus was betrayed, he gave thanks, and he broke bread, and he shared it with his disciples, and he said, do this in remembrance of, of me.
And in the same way, after they had feasted, he took the cup and he blessed it. And he said, this is the new covenant, the new promise in my blood. Do this in remembrance of me. And so whenever we eat this bread and we drink from this cup, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again. And so, come. Come, all you who are hungry. Come, all you who are thirsty. Come, all you who are far off. Come near. Not because we ought to come. Not because we should come, but because we may come. This is Christ's table, and he invites all to come to taste and see that the Lord is good. We have allergen-free elements at the tables around the room. We also have prayer walls if you'd like to write a prayer and have our staff pray for you this week. Uh, We also have some of our prayer team along the wall in the back there who would love to pray with you. Come, all things are ready.